Welcome to Cultivating Curiosity, where two extension agents with UFIFIS Extension explore the world of horticulture and quench yours and our thirst for knowledge. My name is Alyssa Vincent. And I'm Taylor Clem. Join us each month as we delve into fascinating topics in the world of plants and cultivate our curiosity. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Alyssa. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to, uh, to chatting with you today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the best things that I love about horticulture is just talking about botany. You know, but what is botany? And you and I both decided that this discussion on botany would be a great way to kick off our podcast, Cultivating Curiosity, because we need to have an understanding of what botany is, I think, in order to have those good discussions. Absolutely. You know, coming from a communicator's perspective, right, we cannot have a, an effective communication if we don't have a shared understanding or definition. So um, really having that conversation about botany and exploring what, what it means to us and, and, you know, kind of where we come to it from can help inform our, our discussions and how we communicate about plants in general. So absolutely. Yeah. So I know that part of our conversation, we're going to, we're going to speak with um, Mark Frank, who works at the herbarium, but because um, he's going to be able to put a really nice spin and kind of a really cool perspective on what botany is. Mm -hmm. But I think we should also kind of take a stab at saying, what is botany? What, what mm -hmm. the heck is botany? Because that's a yeah. big term. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting because botany can be so many things. I think that mm. um, when I think of botany, I just think of it as an umbrella. Um, you know, a term that describes the scientific study of plants and that can encompass all kinds of different things. Yeah. Like horticulture, horticultural production, um, mm -hmm. ethnobotany. There's a lot of different things that can fall. Anything that involves the study of plants. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and within those individual disciplines, people can get, you know, down really deep rabbit holes and, um, <laughs> you know, I, just the the idea of you know studying uh carbon signatures in fossilized plant matter right yeah that's botany <laughs> <laughs> that's botany so i you know i think you know from two extension agents horticulture extension agents and we have horticulture extension agents across the state of florida and across the country i mean mm -hmm. we're part of land grant university system you know we talk about botany all the time but why we are interested in botany isn't important or to, like individually. So like for you, you know, why, why is it important to you? Why do you care about botany? I think I care about botany because humans wouldn't be alive without plants. <laughs> <laughs> without plants, I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that um, having an understanding of botany really provides a basis for understanding how ecosystems function. Mm -hmm. And coming from from my you know previous field of study in ecosystem sciences, I. I can't make an informed observation about what I'm seeing happen in a natural system unless I have an understanding of the plants that inhabit that system. Absolutely. And like, I'm the kind of the same way. Um, well, like my background, it, landscape architecture, landscape mm -hmm. design really had to do a lot with, you know, the urban regional planning 
uh, as well as down to the scales of like an individual home or property. And we're really looking at environmental function, ecosystem function, Mm -hmm. and a lot of design decisions that are made with designing with intent. Mm -hmm. And so much of that really relies on understanding what is botany? What is that Mm -hmm. ecological function and how do plants fit within it? So even at the level of looking at an extension in horticulture, like the Florida Friendly Landscaping Program, Mm -hmm. you know, botany plays a significant role in it because if we think about the individual homeowner, you know, they want to know what's the best plant to put into my landscape. Right. It really comes down to what? Right plant, right place. Mm -hmm. And that has an impact on decision-making. And and that's all based on that plant, where it evolved in its natural system, how it reacts to sun, um, to water, to Mm -hmm. temperature, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Climate conditions. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry if you live in South Florida, there's a lot of plants that grow in South Florida that don't grow in North Florida because they're going to die in the winter. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or even from a practical standpoint, you know, I was just talking to some folks this morning, the idea of, of clumping plants in your landscape together based on their environmental needs, right? You don't put a bunch of plants in the same landscape bed that have different water requirements or light requirements because you're going to end up inevitably with something that's unhappy and then you're going to call me and you're going to say why is it unhappy and i'm going to say right plant right place (laughs) yeah i would like to tell people i'm going to be a lazy gardener and part of that lazy gardener you know mentality relates to i'm going to put plants the right plant the right place so let the plants be happy and healthy so I can work less, enjoy right. my garden more, work less. I want to be lazy in the garden. And I think that, I mean, that all stems from understanding those plants. Yes. And that's exactly. botany. That's yeah. science. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Of course, when I say science, I imagine being like, you know, Bill and I going, science, but just like plants. Yeah. I, I want to show that she says plants. Yeah. <laughs> So I think, you know, what's a really cool part about botany and a discussion of botany is really starting to jump into those nuances and mm-hmm. understanding of what are the plants? Why are they important to us? Because botany is, you know, understanding that scientific understanding of plants. And then we can look at all those different ways that we can apply them and how it can be important to others. So like one way that we think that botany is important to others because we like to eat. You know, we like to breathe, you know, agriculture is dependent off of botany, you know, understanding our environments. It's significant, Mm -hmm. uh, important understanding of botany. Medicine. Medicine. I I, I like medicine. Yeah. (laughs) Get sick. Yeah. I mean, pharmaceuticals based in botany. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the other things that we can look at are have to do like ethnobotany, the understanding Mm -hmm. of how cultures relate and interact with plants in their environment. And that's a really neat, neat, valuable field of study. Yeah. And there's also all kinds of um, cultural relevance to plants. You know, one of of my favorite poets is Emily Dickinson. And when Mm -hmm. she was a teenager, she actually put together a, um, a botanical collection and she references specific plants in her poetry um, and, and they're representative of different emotions or states of mind. Um, and, and when we look across literature, across art, across religion, we see plants imbued with all this meaning. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, we really can't 
tease out plants from people. They're, they're intimately connected. That's, it's very interesting that, that you mentioned that. It's like that, that connectedness that we have with plants. And there's that whole understanding of science of like how we socially interact with plants. And I know that some of the big topics that we talk about a lot have to do with what's called plant blindness. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you mentioned it's like, yeah, even in, throughout history, we have this deep, deep connection with plants in our environment. And a lot of times we fail to see that we miss yeah. that. And it's called plant blindness. And I right. think that's important for us to have a good understanding of. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And, and just recognizing that that lack of kind of tactile connection, memory connection for an individual. Um, when I, I was teaching a class recently and I asked the people in the audience, so I asked the, the parents in the audience, how many of them had a garden when they were growing up or, you know, had, or their grandparents had a garden. 90% of the people, the parents in the audience raised their hand and said, oh yeah, we had a garden. My grandparents had a garden. I would go and I would pick vegetables. We would grow this. We would grow that. I love doing this. And then I asked the kids the same question and none of the kids raised their hands. None mm. of the kids had a garden at home either because their HOA didn't allow it. They lived in an apartment. They didn't have time. Their parents didn't want to do it. Right. So they're, there was this huge generational gap there between people who had memory of actually getting their hands in the dirt and, and, you know, being around growing plants of cultivating food for themselves. Um, and I was really shocked to, to hear that. And I think that we live a really interesting time too, because, that what you mentioned is a hundred percent true. There's this disconnect that that exists, and why does that disconnect exist? There's so many variables that go into it, mm-hmm. but I think we live in an interesting time, is because we're actually learning through a lot of science and understanding the value of that connectedness with green spaces. Yeah. It has to do with mental health, uh, but also like physical health, like the air we breathe, mm-hmm. especially within these urban settings. So we're seeing major trends occur and how do we reconnect, especially in these urban areas, back mm-hmm. to nature in some capacity, whether it's as simple as green walls or green space within uh, communities, pocket parks, anything that encourages people to be outside and experience the world around them, I think is mm-hmm. so valuable because we've seen trends of what happens as a result of that disconnect. So we're trying to figure out ways, how do we build it back in, in maybe a modern society? And botany is Mm -hmm. a huge portion of that. It is, it is absolutely. And so we have, you know, we have a responsibility, I think, as individuals who we are public servants as extension agents, we serve our communities and as horticulture agents, as people who are kind of in the know about botany, right? We have a responsibility to provide meaningful interactions with the natural world, to provide meaningful interactions with plants to help kind of arrest that plant blindness um, and, and to help, you know, rekindle some of those, I think, intrinsic connections that we have to growing things. So one of the things, you know, that we recently have done or that we are doing as part of this is we're interviewing people as part of Cultivating Curiosity. And with today's discussion of botany, you and I invited Mark Frank 
um, into our digital studio <laughs> to talk about botany. And Mark Frank, for those who do not know, he's an extension botanist and he works for the University of Florida's Herbarium. And mm-hmm. Alyssa and I had a great discussion with him about what is botany and the role that Herbarium plays in understanding our past, present, and future. We're excited to be talking today to Mark Frank. Um, Mark, do you want to just start out by telling us who you are and and what you do with UFIFAS? Sure. My title is Extension Botanist. So I work at the Herbarium, which is the botanical collection at the Florida Museum of Natural History. And I basically use the collection to serve, serve as a resource for all the folks within UF-IFAS, both extension people and researchers in various departments and units across the state. So I'm basically working as a specialist with the collection, providing a service to the extension and researchers throughout the state. Mark, you're one of those people that I think all, all horticulture extension agents and master gardener volunteers throughout the state of Florida know, you know, it was like, oh, you have questions about plants, you know, if we, if, let's reach out to Mark to kind of see um, what he has to say regarding, you know, like plant ID or whatever it might be. But, you know, the story about how we get to what we do and why we do it, I think is always important. So why, what, what was your passion in, with plants and botany in general, and how did it lead you kind of to what you're doing today? So I like to tell a story, which is that when I was six or seven growing up in Augusta, Georgia, um, I could walk out in my parents' yard and name every plant that they had cultivated <laughs> in their landscape. And at some point, someone, one of my siblings or my parents should have said, this is not normal. This child needs to be a botanist. <laughs> but instead, I pursued this circuitous career path where, you know, I went to, to college to be a journalist, and then I took an anthropology class that I loved, and I actually got a graduate degree in archaeology, and I kind of pursued all these different things all along, growing plants in a home garden, growing house plants, and then somewhere around late 30s, early 40s, the the hobby overtook everything <laughs> like i was working a job that had nothing to do with botany and i would think oh it's springtime i gotta call him sick i got too much to do in the yard you know i got i got plants to deadhead i got a garden to plant and so at that point i actually um was had enough flexibility in my schedule so i could do the master gardener program and I did it with Wendy Wilbur, who is our, now our state master gardener coordinator here in Alachua County. And I was insatiable. The information that was being presented to me as a master gardener, I was just eating it up. And so within six months of going through the master gardener program, I was back in graduate school. And I, my degree program kind of balanced horticulture and botany. So I've always loved growing plants. But I really am also fascinated by the science of plants, by botany itself. And I always kind of had the the opinion that understanding how plants function and their classification actually makes me a better horticulturist. 
so it's kind of unusual. You have some people who are really good horticulturists, but don't necessarily know a lot about the science of plants and botany. And then you have the reverse, right? You have people who are amazing botanists, but they just kill plants when they try and grow them. <laughs> and I always thought in the old days, everyone who was a botanist was also a horticulturist and horticulturists were also botanists. And now we've got this artificial division, like in academia, where they're two separate subjects. So I want to ask you, Mark, you know, what, how do we define those? What's the difference between what is botany? What is horticulturist? Are they, you know, transfer, transferable terms? How do we define them? Well, the, the definition that the dictionary would give you is that botany is the scientific study of plants mm -hmm. and it could be anything. It could be ethnobotany, it could be their physiology, it could be their anatomy, it could be how they're classified. It's a scientific study of plants and horticulture is really the scientific study of growing plants. So mm -hmm. it's the science of cultivation mm -hmm. and it could be like um, ornamental crops, it could be home landscapes. When you get onto a larger commercial scale, sometimes people say agronomy instead of horticulture, but basically horticulture is the science of growing plants and botany is the science, the scientific study of plants overall. And of course there is overlap, but I just feel like if you're a horticulture student at a college level, you're lucky to get a basic botany class and that's it. You don't necessarily get a lot of science. And then certainly a botany student is there's no requirement whatsoever if they ever learn anything about growing plants and what goes into that but they seem so inextricably you know bound together mm -hmm. i can't imagine growing a plant and not figuring out how it works or why it works a certain way um you know understanding you know what happens when you prune a plant all of those kinds of things like looking at it and not being curious about that um is is kind of surprising, I think. Um, do you think that that's a, like, is there an artificial separation there or do you think people are just, you know, uninterested? Well, I think that science trains us to be observant and to make connections between what we're observing and what the causal factors are. And in horticulture, we use this term of having a green thumb, right? Like it's some <laughs> magic thing that is bestowed onto a person. Like, oh, they've got such a green thumb. Divine but what intervention. I always, what I always think is that a person who it has a green thumb is making connection between light conditions or watering or fertilization or how they prune or whatever and observing the reactions and then using that to guide their practices, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of people who are horticulturists, but they kind of are just by instinct, winging a prayer kind of thing, <laughs> and not necessarily informed by understanding mm -hmm. how the plant is reacting to a given input. Mm -hmm. The thing is, when I come as a botanist, and you know, I work with master gardeners all across the state, and for the most part, these this is an audience that's already extremely enthusiastic about plants and has some skill level at growing plants. But when you help them understand 
light and photosynthesis and how a plant reacts or the physiology of nutrient or water uptake in response to day length or temperature or whatever, all of a sudden they're like, oh, (laughs) they make these connections, right? Because they'd had these casual observations as horticulturists, but they didn't really put the scientific pieces together. And the science isn't that complicated. One of the things that I love about botany, why I'm a botanist and not like a physicist, is because so much of this stuff is directly observable. So mm-hmm. many of the processes and the reactions, you guys know that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's one of my great joys, actually, is that when you use the science of botany to kind of inform people's questions, and a lot of times their questions, you know, one of the questions I get all the time, people want to know, what is this plant and is it poisonous or not? Mm-hmm. And then the poisonous, they're expecting a yes, no. It's poisonous or it's not poisonous, right? right? But then I give them some nuance about what toxicity actually is and how our body reacts and dosage and that there's a whole array of toxins and they can affect us really differently. And then Mm -hmm. they realize it's not a simple question, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like you're ever going to learn that in school, right? Like that everyone's going to talk to you about the nuances of toxicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But once someone explains it to you, it's very common sense. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I really like that perspective that you give on it. You know, really, when we look at botany as the science and maybe horticulture, sometimes like that's the application and making sure that we're informing our decision making mm-hmm. through that scientific understanding or that discovery. Because mm-hmm. right. I yeah. love as an extension agent doing exactly what you just mentioned is essentially pulling back the veil. Yeah. You know, it's like I can explain to someone it's like, yeah, these are the things about right plant, right place. But if we can like pull back that veil a little bit to allow them like to go, wow, you can open up the world in a completely new perspective, I think is fascinating. And a lot of that will actually be stemmed to the botany, the science that's behind the horticulture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish we had more time in Master Gardener training to get that science in there because, you know, with the public and with master gardeners, we have people of all different backgrounds, all different education levels. They may or may not have been exposed to basic aspects of botany, but it might have been like in a junior high or high school level. And now it's like 40 years later. And if you don't if you don't maintain some familiarity with the terminology, you know, it can seem very daunting, very Mm -hmm. sciencey and inaccessible. Yes. But of all of the different sciences, I've always found that botany is the most accessible. Botany and geology, you know, are both things that you can observe Mm In your day to day, tactile, can, tactile, and exactly. tactile, you can put your hands exactly, on it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the, um, so the terminology is really fascinating to me, and especially plant naming, like different classification strategies and naming strategies. Um, and I, I find it interesting that you have an archaeology anthropology background, because one of the things I've discovered in learning how plants are named and classification is that there is an 
intricate and um, very detailed connection between how plants were used or their morphological characteristics and the names they ended up with. Do Absolutely. You, do you find... You know, do you, do you find any of that kind of in, in what you do? And how do you kind of bring those two things together? So going back to when I was studying anthropology, I was actually working as an archaeologist and I was studying animal bones from archaeological sites. So I was using reference collections in a museum setting to identify these scraps of bones that had been found in archaeological settings. Well, everything in the comparative collection had a scientific name, right? So I was learning the binomials, the scientific names of fishes and birds and turtles and lizards and different kinds of mammals. And they all told a story about that organism, some aspect of the habitat it was in or how it was used or its physical characteristics. And so when I started studying the science of plants and exposure to classification, it just seemed intuitive and I lapped it up. And of course, all of that naming relies on old Greek and Latin roots. And so you see those, those suffixes and prefixes being used over and over again. And you start to realize that certain things have a meaning and then you don't even have to like go to a handy book to look up what a name means, but you're like, oh, angustifolius means narrow leaf. And you might have multiple species that have that epithet, angustifolius, and then someone asks you to identify the plant and they say, is it this species or that species? And I'll say, well, I'm guessing it's angustifolius because it's got narrow leaves and you could just look at it and say, oh, narrow leaves, that's probably the epithet. I mean, the the botanist who gave scientific names to plants or the biologists who gave scientific names to organisms were really they were trying to communicate information you know it wasn't like a separate thing at that time that latin and greek was it was the language of science so it was really designed to facilitate if you were a botanist in france trying to communicate with a botanist in Russia or Italy, and you had different mother tongues, that Latin and Greek, you know, scientific language was like a foundation that you could share information. And so, you know, people always come to me with questions about plants related to common names. And they'll say, is jasmine poisonous? And I was like, well, which one? Because there's so <laughs> many different plants that can be called jasmine, and they might not even be in the same genus, jasminum. You might have orange jasmine, or you might have Carolina jessamine, which some people call mm -hmm. jasmine, and they're all like unrelated and have different attributes. And so then I've always appreciated the specificity of that, the classification and the scientific names, because like each organism only has one current scientific name, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you've mastered that name, then you're unambiguous in what you're communicating with people about. Mm -hmm. And if you use a common name, there's just so many, so many times when folks have approached me confused about the characteristics or the cultivation requirements or the toxicity or the edibility of a specific plant. And then I find out it's a confusion that stems from 
the common name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we use common names because they're easy to pronounce. You know, they're easy to understand. But, you know, for as many different cultural backgrounds and nations that we have, we've got different common names. Yeah. So, you know, that can really lead to confusion if you're trying to communicate accuracy to people. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to ask, Mark, because, you know, your background, you mentioned about the archaeology and then getting back into, you, you know, your passion for botany and horticulture. You're now at the herbarium, essentially kind of doing what you were doing to a certain extent when you were the archaeologist. Can you explain a little bit about what you do at the herbarium as well sure. as like what it, what's the purpose of the herbarium? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so um, the herbarium at the University of Florida was established in the 1890s. It's actually the oldest herbarium in the state, and it's got this intimate association with extension, but at that time, extension was known as agricultural experimentation, right? Mm -hmm. So we had the Florida Agricultural Experiment Station, which was in Lake City at Florida Agricultural College, and they were having... growers, they might have been ranchers, they might have been farmers who were coming to the faculty at that ag station saying, what is this weed that's in my pasture? And if my cow eats it, are they going to get sick or is it going to spoil the milk? Or what is this weed that's in my pepper or tomato field? And is it robbing nutrients and out competing? And do I need to remove it? And if so, what's its life cycle? And so the folks who were at that ag experiment station realized that there was a value to having a reference collection of the plants that were growing in the wild and also the plants that were introduced. So that was the start of the herbarium as the faculty person and the first founder of the Ag Experiment Station was Peter Rolfs. We actually have a building here on campus named Rolfs Hall, named for him. Rolfs was also the founder of the herbarium. So then when Rolfs was out visiting growers or training his students, they would collect specimens dry them, press them, mount them on a piece of paper using glue and linen strips, and they started building this reference collection. Mm -hmm. You know, and at that time, it might have been a few hundred specimens. Now we've got a collection of about half a million specimens. Wow. (laughs) So, So what I do here at the herbarium, getting back to your question, is twofold. So in one regard, I'm the outreach person. I'm like a reference librarian who is leveraging all the information that is in the collection to serve this statewide clientele. But on the other side, I'm a collection manager. So I am supervising 42 student employees and volunteers who are doing all aspects of preparation of specimens for the herbarium. So they might actually be mounting specimens on paper. They might be preparing specimen labels. They might be cataloging and putting barcodes on specimens. They might be repairing old specimens that are in the collection. They might be databasing or imaging. So we've got all of these processes going on with specimens that are coming in from a whole variety of sources. And so 
I'm one of two people who's kind of shepherding plant specimens through the process and then also doing outreach based on the specimens that are in the collection. So Mark, in addition to being a repository of knowledge and you being an individual who provides outreach related to the half million <laughs> plant specimens that are in the <laughs> herbarium, what else do you see as kind of the importance of an herbarium? Is there an importance outside of that? Well, I mean, because we're in a university setting, this is a training ground, right? So for the future botanists, so we've got graduate students who are studying plant classification. We've got graduate students who are studying economic botany, how plants are used. We've got students who might be going into um, land management or ecology where plants are really relevant. So we've got all of these students from all different kinds of backgrounds who are coming into the herbarium, sometimes in an employment capacity and sometimes in a research capacity. Mm -hmm. Like right now, one of my student mounters is a pharmacy undergrad. Well, mm -hmm. think about it. I mean, in the old days, all medicine was derived from plants, right? Mm -hmm. So she is learning a whole bunch that's actually, even though she's not a botany major, a whole bunch about plants that's directly relevant to what she's studying. And she's able to make a lot of connections. So I see that as one really important part um, is just being a training ground. But then the other thing is this is providing a record of what is here and what was here. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to think about how different Florida was a hundred years ago. No mm -hmm. highways, no condominiums. You know, there wasn't the population or the volume of traffic coming into the state. So it was a very different landscape. And we had a lot of species that either don't occur here at all or occurred in habitats that are increasingly reduced and mm -hmm. so you're much less likely to see the plants right and so the herbarium kind of provides a snapshot in time of what was here we even though we were established in the 1890s we have specimens dating back to the 1840s so we're approaching a 200 year record of what wow. was here and it's not just what was native it was what was cultivated and then at some point looking at specimens you might have had something that was cultivated like kudzu for example which we now <laughs> think of as a weed but you look at the earliest specimens of kudzu and they were being introduced in demonstration gardens because they were evaluating it to control erosion and as a potential forage and as a potential fiber crop. And then it got out of control, right? And mm -hmm. so this collection serves as a reference point. Almost all of the species that we think of as invasive or bad today, you can go back and pinpoint a point of introduction when it wasn't, when it was purposeful, when someone had an intention of bringing it in. And then you can say, okay, in the 1870s, people were introducing skunk vine as a potential ornamental or because they thought it might have a specified use, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can start having 
researchers who might not even be botanists. They might be invasion scientists or ecologists mm -hmm. who are leveraging the information in the collection or realizing going and sampling the specimens of the collection that there were multiple introductions of different genetic background. And mm -hmm. then you have this different genetic material hybridizing, creating the super invasive that's got all this. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of information mm -hmm. that is packed into those specimens. And it's really our imagination is the limitation. So, so, you know, 50 years ago, no one's imagining you would extract DNA from a dried up press specimen. Our, our director of, of IFAS, Scott Angle, he was originally studying um, soil and water toxicity. And so when he was a graduate student, he went to the herbarium at Kew and was taking samples off of plants and looking at heavy metals wow. that were in pressed plant specimens because he was studying which species were better at sequestering these toxins that were born in soil, wow. right? So, and I mean, you can do that on a historic scale. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of different information that is packed into these specimens. It's just, what can you figure out to do mm -hmm. with them? And sometimes the information is in the data you know, it's in the information that's on the label. And sometimes the information might be in the physical material itself. So if you're talking about something like climate change, for example, you might look at a certain species over time and see if you're seeing changes in the length of time or the time of year that's flowering or fruiting. Yeah. Or you might actually be able to take samples off the plant and actually see if there's changes in atmospheric concentrations of mm -hmm. carbon dioxide. Yeah. There's all kinds of different applications to having a collection like this. I think that brings up a really cool question. You know, we talk a lot about the herbarium, you know, looking at those historic records and how you just mentioned is that, you know, climate change or global warming and how we can look at these samples. What is the role that you think like botany and the herbarium plays a role in this has in our modernizing, changing world? So, um, you know, part of what I do is identify plants and then if they're not represented from that location, say that county or that part of the state, then we're making a record because, you know, we rely now on all this technology, things like iNaturalist or different apps. But I always wonder, like, what technology from 50 years ago is still existing today, right? So we've got these various computer applications where we document stuff. But are those even going to be around like when we're older and grayer? So then I think, well, the physical specimens hopefully aren't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. That no matter what changes in technology or I mean, like, are we going to use JPEGs for photos or is it going to be a totally different file format, for example? Yeah. Yeah. But the specimen will still be there for someone to refer to. Mm -hmm. So not just in herbaria, but in biological collections overall, museums, biological repositories, what we kind of are self-imposed charges that we're maintaining these collections in perpetuity 
for people to refer to in addressing what the past was like, but also what is happening in terms of change over time, and then helping to inform models about what might be happening in the future. And Mm -hmm. so now the big trend in museum studies is they're hiring all these people who are AI specialists who are looking at massive amounts of data that are compiled and input into museum databases. And it might not just be plants. They might be looking at plants and birds and mollusk Mm -hmm. and pumping it into these computer programs where they're coming up with some really meaningful information Mm -hmm. about environmental change. Mm -hmm. And so getting back to that old theme, it's like we're only limited by our imaginations Mm -hmm. in terms of how we can utilize these collections. Mm -hmm. And I'm very old school. So I like the physical specimens and the study of the biological process, but there's all kinds of people who are really specialists in what you can do with the data, the information. Mm -hmm. And that's just as cool, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like you can always you can always look at a physical specimen, right? No matter what our technology is, we'll always be able to look at a physical specimen, but we won't always be able to read a floppy disk. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. So, yeah. Well put. Well put. <laughs> yeah. I I've, I've always been really fascinated with the the history of just specimen collecting in general. And, um, you know, Taylor and I talked a little bit about this. I think that many of the sciences now are kind of having sort of a reckoning moment or coming to terms with the history of their field of science. And I know that botany, you know, a lot of the historic collections that we have and, um, you know, there was a kind of a lack of traditional indigenous knowledge and maybe even like permission <laughs> to, to collect some of those specimens, um, especially with your background in archaeology, you know, is there anything that you kind of think about in this moment related to the science of botany and how it's changed over time? Well, I mean, s- certainly there's an increased sensitivity in naming, right? So if you have a plant that is um, weedy, or toxic, or has some undesirable attributes. And then the scientific name has, you know, Japanese in it, such and such japonica. Mm -hmm. And then there's people questioning, is this associating the negative attributes of that species with the Mm -hmm. country of Japan? And is that a fair thing to do? Does it make Mm -hmm. someone who is of Japanese heritage feel uncomfortable. And I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. So one aspect that we're definitely seeing is an evaluation of scientific names as well as common names. Mm -hmm. So for example, with the invasive tree that's so bad in South Florida with Brazilian pepper, Mm -hmm. you know, there's people questioning, well, should we be calling it Brazilian pepper? Should we be calling it something else? And people Mm -hmm. suggested alternative names. But what I always go back to is, well, you want a common name that is going to help people access 
the most up-to-date information and the most accurate information. So if the USDA and UFIFAS extension and all these other things are still using Brazilian pepper in their outreach materials, then we shouldn't change the name until we're updating the information sources. That would be cart before the horse and it would lead people astray. Mm -hmm. The other thing then that you got to evaluate is, is that whole heritage thing. Where did plants come from? Were they collected with permission? Were they brought out of country legally? What were the regulations of that time? Today, we're super sensitive to it. So our curator in the herbarium, Lucas Majur, works all over tropical America. So he works in Peru and the Dominican Republic and Costa Rica and, you know, any place that he can get into. But he's always collaborating with researchers that are in country. And he's got an international cast of graduate students. (laughs) And so then they're ensuring that they're collecting things in a way that are sensitive to the host country. Usually they're collecting with botanists who are in the host country and they're having the primary set of specimens stay Mm -hmm. in country and then duplicates might be brought out to Florida and they're using the collecting as an opportunity to train botanists in those countries. So there's definitely a sordid past in all of our ologies, any biology field, mammalogy, ornithology, malacology, botany, whatever. (laughs) But I think we're much more sensitive to it today, both in terms of the naming and the practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of it might be a little oversensitive. Like I might, we might see the pendulum swing back in Mm -hmm. a different direction, but I think it's good that we're all thinking about it at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that we're planning on talking about in an upcoming um, podcast is is specifically the field of ethnobotany. And, you know, so I think we lose something when we don't know how plants were used um, or are currently used. So that's right. something we're, we're definitely interested in. So, so there was a, a botanist at the Smithsonian whose last name was Sturdivant. And Sturdivant came to Florida and worked with the Seminole. Mm. And so he actually recorded Seminole names and uses for various plant species. So, you know, there are some botanists in the past who were very conscious about Mm -hmm. recording this type of information. And Sturdivant did make specimens. We don't have a lot of them here. There are more of them in the Smithsonian herbarium. And so then you might have people argue, well, these plants were collected on Seminole land. So were they really collected with permission and mm-hmm. legally, but then you might argue from the other hand, well, Sturdivant was recording this information and associated with the specimen. So he was mm-hmm. educating a wider audience and for posterity as to what were the traditional names for these plants and their mm-hmm. uses. So you could like interpret those specimens either way, right? That it was something that was perhaps collected without permission and as part mm-hmm. of their their heritage, their land. And at the same time, it's this record documenting 
something that may not be as widely known today by the, the living Seminole people. Yeah. You know, because traditional knowledge gets lost over time, particularly if things aren't being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious to, you know, as somebody who teaches to the public quite often, I definitely see that people don't really understand differentiation between plants. Uh, they don't they don't think about plants very often unless they're, um, you know, specifically engaging in a, in a landscape activity or they call me when their lawn is dying, <laughs> um, you know, but I think that for, for the majority of folks that I interact with just out and about in the community, plants are just kind of an afterthought. Um, and I know I've heard you talk about plant blindness before, um, you know, what, what is the role of the botanist in plant blindness and like, what, what is it? Well, so plant blindness is a term that was actually developed by people who are both science educators and botanists. And they used a series of behavioral studies to realize that the general public um, and their their behavioral studies were done on a national scale. So it Mm. wasn't just in a certain city or a certain state, but with with target audiences from all over the country. And what they found is... um, people's attention was captured more strongly by animals than by plants mm-hmm. when given list of common names of plant and animals that people were more likely to be able to recall names of the animals and the plants when presented with photos that might show an elephant grazing on a fruit in a big tree and they'd ask people a big group a hundred study participants what's in this photo of the people would say it's an elephant. No one would ever mention the tree. Hmm. So collectively, based on this whole series of behavioral studies, these scientific educators came up with this concept of plant blindness, which basically means a societal inability to see plants and to recognize their importance Hmm. in our everyday lives. And you might think, oh, this is just a bunch of botanists who are like sour grapes because they're not getting money and they're not like, you know, getting all the glory. We want more attention. Yeah. But it, it, it honestly manifests in so many ways. And Alyssa, you're going to hear a presentation. Well, Taylor, you're going to hear it this Friday at our regional conference. And then Alyssa, you'll hear it next week. But things that I wasn't even aware of as a botanist, for example, with endangered species in the United States, we have a federal endangered species list, Mm -hmm. right? It includes both plants and animals. Did you know with endangered animals on our federal list, they are protected on both private land and public land. With the federally listed plant species, they are only protected on public land, but not on private land, but almost 70% of the endangered plants are on private land. So there is a difference in protection. Mm -hmm. Plants make up almost 65% of the species that are on that federal list, but only 4% of the federal funding that is used to study and try and address endangered species goes to plants. All the rest of it goes to animals. When you're getting um, a curriculum for someone who's going to teach science at a primary or secondary school level, there are no requirements for them to have a botany course. They have a general biology, but there are usually multiple requirements 
requirement for zoology and ecology mm -hmm. classes. So there are all of these ways in which our predisposition to not see plants can transfer so that people then are concerned about potential hurricane damage and they might see trees in their neighborhood as a liability yes, rather yeah. than an asset. So then you've got to educate people. Plants create the oxygen that we breathe. Plants are the foundation of the trophic system. So everything is mm -hmm. feeding on plants and the things that we are feeding on plants. Plants are the foundation of so many different things in terms of food, fuel, fiber, medicine, and so on. But it's easy to lose track of that. We've lost sight of our connection to nature. And so plant blindness is part of a, a broader dissociation that we think of ourselves as humans as separate from nature. Mm -hmm. But we're really so horribly dependent on nature, right? You don't mm -hmm. realize until the power goes out or the car breaks down or whatever, the extent to which we are really vulnerable. And so we have to maintain that awareness and understanding. And I think when more people grew up in an agricultural setting, they really understood that and they mm -hmm. made connections between soil quality or water quality, air quality, and their ability to make a living. And they saw everything as interconnected and part of the system. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a highly urbanized environment where a lot of our lives are spent on devices, you know, with this like spur of the moment, all this stuff coming, it's so easy to just ignore the natural world yeah. or to just look at the cute things like the fat bears which maybe <laughs> I, 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 are still adorable yeah you know, I, I love that bear week i love all the cat videos and everything but it doesn't really tell the whole story right it's only one side of that coin almost yeah, yeah. so i mean now i've kind of made it my mission with the plant blindness, I developed the talk about two years ago, and I did it for an audience that was a statewide garden club learning opportunity. And the uniform reaction was, oh, my God, I had no idea. <laughs> and there were a few master gardeners. There were a few extension agents. And I thought, oh, my, this is so relevant to what we're doing communicating to the statewide clientele, right? That now I'm like, okay, if at least if all of us as extension agents and master gardeners are aware of this predisposition to not see or to misunderstand, it will change how we communicate about plants. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, it, that reminds me of this really good book by uh, Robert Thayer Jr. I actually see it on my bookshelf, Gray World, Green Heart. And it talks a lot about that, that disconnection and dis disassociation of nature and its impacts it's had. And plant blindness definitely falls within that. Because if we think about how do we change and overcome or create these new conversations, part of it is kind of just maybe reconnecting a conversation that was that we have once lost, yeah. you know, to a certain extent, because I know like plant blindness, we look at some even evolutionary uh, behaviors that are associated with it. But um, I think in extension, it's important for us to how do we create this 
conversation? How do we bridge these gaps in knowledge and understanding? And Mark, the work that you do as a botanist with the herbarium is unbelievably valuable Mm -hmm. to not only us as extension agents, but as well as to the entire state, because what we're doing is you're helping pull back that information and veil that information in a way that we can have a better understanding of our history, mm-hmm. but then also looking at how do we rediscover and reconnect and thinking about what's in store for the future and why plants and botany play a role in that. Mm-hmm. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm just noticing the time and I have a question. I really love plant names. So I was curious, do you have a favorite plant name like a favorite one to say out loud wow (laughs) i don't know that someone's ever asked me that i remember from my archaeology days that there was a tropical reef fish that had the most bizarre genus name it was abu duff deaf and i thought <laughs> Where who would come up with a generic name Abu Duff Duff? And it's so much fun. It sounds like something a baby would say when yeah. they're like, blah, 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 Abu Duff Duff. <laughs> so I mean we would just say it for no reason at all. But um the the other scientific name, again, it's not a plant name, but you know how robins will migrate through and they'll just eat whatever the Carolina cherries and then they'll Mm -hmm. just poop everywhere. Mm -hmm. And did you know that the genus name for the robin is Turtis? Turtis Turtis Migratorius is the scientific name. And it is, it's like a migratory turd machine. And so I've always thought, you know, there is no more aptly named bird than Turtis Migratorius. So I'm sure if, if, if you had previewed me, I could have come up with a comparably entertaining plant name, but those are the two that come out. I, I am entertained that we're talking to a botanist and your favorite, the, the favorite scientific name is a, a migratory turd machine. <laughs> so what I always tell people is, you know, I'm so fortunate because I did study all these different things. I studied archaeology and fossils. And when I was studying archaeology, I got to study a little bit about mammalogy and ornithology and all these different aspects. So I always feel like as a botanist, if you just study botany, you don't understand the big picture, it can be harder to make botany accessible. And Mm. conversely, if you really understand all the different things, you can kind of make botany relevant to someone, even if they're a graduate student in wildlife ecology, or they're studying um, the biology of pythons that are invasive in South Florida, you can make botany relevant to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I really enjoy is that I can never anticipate the type of questions that people come and the types of backgrounds. You know, it might be someone who's doing a necropsy in a vet school and trying to understand why an animal died and what's in their guts, or Mm -hmm. someone trying to understand the ecology of an invasive tegu lizard that's in Central and South Florida. And there is some way that the study of plants can be relevant to the question that they're trying to answer. Mark, I know that we're, uh, we started to run out of time, but I know that we could talk to you for hours about <laughs> anything and everything under the sun with regards to plants and botany. But 
I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to hang out with Alyssa and I just to help pull back a little bit of that veiled information to help, you know, for allow us to discover botany in a deeper way. This has been an enormous pleasure. I wasn't sure what to expect, but it was a lot of fun. If you, <laughs> as you're doing your cultivating curiosity podcast, if there's someplace else where I can, you know, chime in, just let me know. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you guys. Mark. Okay. Take care. So Taylor, that was a great conversation. With oh Mark yeah. I, every conversation <laughs> with Mark is a wonderful conversation. <laughs> I just wish that we had the ability to spend more time with him in those conversations. Yes, I agree. I think uh, next time we're in the same physical location together, I'm looking forward to uh, picking his brain a little bit more. I had no idea that he matched bones uh, in his previous <laughs> museum work. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. And I think it's really cool to kind of see his evolution of where he's at right now because his passion was with plants growing mm -hmm. up. That story was hysterical, I thought. I know. <laughs> and then how that evolved is like, you know, archaeology. And then he's like, wait a minute. And he's essentially bridging the gap of those two passions. Mm -hmm. And um, here he is helping serve as his curators as extension botanist. He's a wonderful resource. I'm Yeah, I can't tell you how many times myself or the volunteers in the Master Gardener program here in Manatee, we've reached out to Mark and just said like, Mark, please help, <laughs> help me, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> That's 100% true. So I want to turn the cards on you really quick. Turn the tables real quick, Alyssa. Because you asked a really good question to mm. Mark, and we got a great response. But I do want <laughs> I do want to ask you, what is your favorite plant name? So my favorite plant name, I always go to this one because it feels like I should dance when I say it, and that's Cocoloba uvifera. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. What is what is that plant? Uh, that is our sea grape which yeah. is a native plant to Florida. It has actually fruit that's edible, but I can never manage to pick any of it before the birds steal it all from me. And um, that's but, what it's there for. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Interesting fact about sea grapes is they have leaves that are so thick and leathery that people actually used to write on them and send them as postcards through the mail. Oh, seriously? I didn't know that. In North Florida, we will have sea grape, but not that often, you know? So I always love when I'm in a like, slightly warmer parts of the state mm -hmm. to see that because I love just seeing how how large of a shrub that it is it's so yeah. it's beautiful and like the coarse texture leaves a cool little plant mm -hmm. cool Very little cool. plant cool big right. plant <laughs> so Taylor turning the tables Oops. what is your favorite plant name one of my favorite plant names I love to say is just because I just love how it rolls off the tongue is for the needle palm which is one of our native palm species um, but it is the Rapidophyllum hystrix. I love saying Rapidophyllum. Rapidophyllum. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of the Latin terms that we use or scientific terms that we use for plants, I love saying because I feel like I'm casting spells on people. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, don't be surprised if you ever say a Latin term around me and I say flick and swish, you know? <laughs> or swish and flick. I had it backwards. So... <laughs> So, but um, Alyssa, it's been wonderful speaking with you today, and it's been wonderful that we had the opportunity to speak with Mark, and we look forward to jumping into future topics all about plants and the amazing plant kingdom 
um, yes. as we explore and cultivate our curiosities together. Absolutely. Thanks, Taylor. Thank you, Alyssa. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on Cultivating Curiosity. Join us each month as we explore the fascinating world of plants. For more information on today's topic, check out our webpage and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. My name is Taylor. And I'm Alyssa. Stay curious with us.